Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, verse 45. Mark 6, 45. If you're using the Bibles provided, you can find today's passage on page 842. We get to examine yet another incredible miracle this morning. The Gospel of Mark is full of them. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so already, to sit down and read through the gospel from beginning to end uh, at some point. It, uh, it is exciting. It does not skip a beat at all. It takes about two hours to read out loud if you want to do it in one sitting. It's less than some movies, to put it into perspective. And it's going to help you put together all of the pieces as we slowly go through and examine each paragraph or portion of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. If you were to go back to Palestine during this time, Jesus would be all the rage. Conversations would be filled with stories about his teachings and his miracles. There would be many rumors about just who this amazing person is. Two weeks ago, Jesus showed compassion for people because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he performed a miracle that demonstrated the same kind of power that God used in the wilderness to provide for Israel. Well, our story this morning picks up right where that one left off. Jesus, having just fed a crowd of at least 5,000, perhaps as many as 15,000, mealtime is over, the crowd is satisfied and filled, and now we get to read what the disciples and Jesus do next. Let's read our passage together now. Mark 6, 45 through 56. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dis- while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is God's holy word. It's hard to know how to introduce a passage like this one. It's spectacular and out of the ordinary and yet compelling at the same time. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, this story is lodged in our brain as just a fact about Jesus' life, much like the virgin birth. 
But we rarely stop and think about how extraordinary it is to claim and to believe. Well, it's not the first miracle in the Bible, but even still, what does it mean to the watching world to believe in this man? To believe in a compelling teacher who lived over 2,000 years ago, and to believe that he walked on water. Much like the previous section, there's a level of integrity that comes to reading the Bible and taking the Bible for what it says rather than what we think might be the most likely scenario. Even still, I think as we take a closer look at the claims of Christianity, even in the case of a man walking on water, I think this claim will not be as outrageous as it might first appear, considering the context. Because Mark is trying to communicate something to his readers. And the thing he's showing his readers through this story is that the power and identity of God is revealed in the very person of Jesus. That's the main idea of this passage, that the power and identity of God is revealed in the very person of Jesus. I think that'll be clear as we trace the movements of Jesus through this part of the story. And as we do, my prayer is that your faith would be strengthened to know the divine power and the divine presence of Christ. Five movements of Jesus. First, Jesus prays. Jesus prays. If you remember the beginning of the chapter, Jesus had been teaching all day. After seeking a desolate place to get away from people, the crowd runs ahead of him to the desolate place where he and his disciples were going. And in verse 34 of chapter 6, Mark tells us that Jesus saw this great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering, lost, misguided. And Jesus, in his compassion, moved to them. He taught them. For many hours, he gave them spiritual instruction. And after spending hours with this great crowd, he miraculously fed them with a measly five loaves and two fish. And verse 42 says they all ate and were satisfied. There was an abundance left over, and it's immediately after this miraculous feeding, Jesus dismisses his disciples to get into the boat. And it's easy to miss, but... Uh, Jesus instructs his disciples with some force in doing this. John gives us a little bit of context as to why that might be. In John's account, in his recording of this event, John says that the people, the crowd, were going to take away Jesus by force and make him their king. Remember that people were a little confused about what Jesus' motives were. They recognized his authoritative teaching But they thought that the title of Messiah or Christ had militant expectations specifically. They were waiting for someone to come and conquer the Romans, to put a Jew back on the throne to reclaim and restore the Davidic kingdom. Jesus is the Davidic king, but his plans are much bigger than what they think. He came to do much more than reclaim a small patch of land and rescue a single people group. Jesus came to cleanse sinners all over the world. Jesus came for a purpose, to restore the broken relationship between God and people. Not to to reinstitute Torah law, but to write his law on their hearts, to dwell inside each individual member of the covenant rather than in a building nearby separated by 
a thick curtain. Well, in the midst of many miracles and captivating teaching, the people were confident that he was the Messiah. They recognized that in him. But his agenda was not what they thought. And that's one of the reasons Mark notes multiple times after Jesus performs a miracle, he specifically instructs them not to tell anyone about it, which seems kind of counterintuitive to his ministry, doesn't it? But that's what theologians have called the messianic secret, and it serves as a sign to us that Jesus was in control and had to maintain his reputation, that he did everything for a reason during his ministry. Well, this part of the story is one of those instances as well. Perhaps he sent the disciples away uh, quickly because he didn't want them to get carried away with the demands of the crowd. Whatever the case, he urgently sends them away while he stands behind to dismiss the crowd. I've made this observation many times in looking at Jesus dealing with crowds, but I think this is just another example of Jesus' patience with them. He stays goodbye, stays behind to say goodbye, to speak to them again, to bless them most likely. And a crowd this size may have taken some time to leave. They probably wanted to thank him for the teaching and for the meal, say hello to them, to him themselves. But Jesus sees them off, and then he retreats to a mountain to pray. Isn't it amazing that Jesus prays? Mark only mentions it three times in the gospel, but each time he goes somewhere private to spend time with his heavenly father. There's a lot of things that Jesus did that we could never do. We can't heal people. We can't multiply bread. We can't walk on water. More on that later. But we can pray. And friend, if there's anything that we're fully capable of doing that Jesus did, don't you think we should? The fact that Jesus puts aside the large crowd he was ministering to and even the smaller group of disciples that he spent much of his private time with to spend time alone with God should communicate to us the incredible value of prayer and time with God. Not to mention Jesus being the Son of God himself. If there's anyone who doesn't need to pray, right, it's Jesus. Yet he takes the opportunity to talk to God. Mark doesn't really tell us what he prayed or why Jesus went up to pray. Some have said that in the three instances Jesus is praying in the gospel, it's always before a big moment, which is true. But if you read through the gospel of Mark, you'll see that every other paragraph is a big moment, it seems. So I'm actually inclined to believe that the spirit who inspired Mark to record these things intended readers like us to see that Jesus saw it as an important thing to do. Just as important as the things we consider to be the headlines of the gospel. And if Jesus sought out time to pray privately to God, then how much more should we? Let me just encourage you as one of your pastors, the next time you find yourself with a little bit of free time, perhaps an extra 20 minutes before a meeting or a canceled lunch appointment, to take the time and repurpose it for prayer. Better yet, make it a priority to plan times of prayer in your schedule. Just like any other relationship, you can cultivate your relationship with God by spending time talking to him. Notice, too, that Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. Now, you don't have to go up on a mountain to pray. 
There's not better reception to God the higher you are. But I think there is something to say about finding a quiet place to pray. I love what Matthew Henry says about Jesus climbing up a mountain to pray. He said this, He went alone to pray, though he needed not to retire for the avoiding either of distraction or of ostentation, yet to set us an example and to encourage us in our secret addresses to God. He prayed alone, and for want of a closet, he went up into a mountain to pray. A good man is never less alone than when he is alone with God. Since Jesus was out in the wilderness, he had no closet. But he went up on a mountain. So perhaps you don't have a mountain that you can climb. A closet will do just fine. Retreat to it and spend time, focus on time alone with God. Prayer is one of those topics that we'll be covering in our Meeting with God Equip Hour over the next few weeks. And so if you are looking for more practical advice about how to implement this into your life, uh, do attend. It's every Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. here in the main building, just one hour before service begins. That's Jesus prays. Second, Jesus sees. Jesus sees. Mark continues to tell us in verse 47 how the disciples were out at sea, and by this point the boat is three to four miles away, which if you're standing on the shore, uh, some people say if you're on the ocean for, or you're at the beach, for example, looking out of the ocean, where you see the horizon as far as you can see, that's about four miles. Somehow, all the way up on a mountain in the middle of, an, in the, middle of the night, Jesus sees his disciples. I understand this may be possible from a high vantage point or if the moon is particularly bright, but I'm inclined to believe that Jesus' ability to see them is beyond normal human capabilities. Why? Because fishing boats are not large crafts. The beginning of verse 48 specifically says he sees that, that they are making headway painfully. In other words, he doesn't just see a tiny boat way off in the distance. He sees that they are struggling to make progress. And the word used for making headway painfully is used elsewhere to describe torment. Specifically, it's used to describe demon possession, childbirth, and hell. So it's not a peaceful boat ride. There are strong winds, as we know from chapter 4, that occurred on the sea. And they're preventing the disciples from sailing properly. And Jesus somehow is able to see them in their need and eventually moves towards them. It's certainly true theologically that Jesus knows our needs and sees us wherever we are. This event is a tangible reminder that Jesus is aware of what his disciples are going through, no matter the distance between them. And we should be comforted to see that Jesus knew what the disciples were struggling with, even though they didn't know that he could see them. Even though... They thought he was far off, perhaps beyond sight. He sees their need and he goes to them. The same is true for us. He sees our struggling. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness and our failures. He sees us making headway painfully through life. And he comes to our aid. Perhaps more important than the comfort of knowing he sees us is the security that comes with knowing he never leaves us. Jesus 
separated in order to pray and in the process exposed the disciples' need of him, just like he did in pointing out how little food they had before he fed the large crowd. And because of their need of him is exposed, we're able to see Christ's power to see them and his ability to care for them. The rest of the Bible teaches us that after Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us his spirit to dwell in our hearts, to give us the mind of Christ, to be with us at all times. And he, not just, he doesn't just see our struggling, he feels it as well. Think about Acts 9, when Saul is on the road persecuting Christians, the risen Lord Jesus appears in front of him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says back to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus knows every movement of his disciples. He sees them from afar and goes to them. Later, he would absorb the very wrath of God for them. And even today, he feels every bit of trouble you do. Brothers and sisters, isn't it comforting to know that God knows your struggles? even the small ones. Unlike the last time, the disciples may have been struggling here, but they're not perishing like they were in chapter 4. The sea is being thrashed about, but they don't seem to really be in a lot of danger. They don't actually express any fear until Jesus shows up. But Jesus sees them struggling to make their way, and he goes to them. Even in the small struggles of life, Jesus sees, and Jesus is with us. Now, perhaps you're here today and you're not a Christian. The idea of a God who sees everything you do is not comforting to you at all. In fact, it's, maybe it's unsettling. Perhaps you think it's not fair that nothing is invisible to God. But friend, just think with me about this for a brief moment. Jesus is not a God who just knows all of your dirt and is sitting on the edge of the seat waiting to judge you. Jesus is the God who knows all of your dirt And knowing all of your dirt, willingly came, put on weakness to be a substitute, a sacrifice on your behalf, so that you would not perish, but have eternal life. For all those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, you can be forgiven, and he will wash your dirt clean. Consider your life and the things you're living for. Is this God really as bad as you think? And are the ways you're living worth losing your soul over? Jesus sees. Third, Jesus walks. He doesn't stay up there on the mountain. Certainly, he he could have calmed the winds from where he was. But instead, he uses his calming presence to walk to them. Look down at the middle of verse 48. It says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Is that really what the Bible says Jesus did? Walking on the sea? Is there any other way to translate this verse? Not really. Mark says that Jesus came to them in the fourth watch of the night, which, by the way, is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., and it's another uh, 
detail that hints that Mark is writing to a Roman audience since he divides it into the Roman four watches rather than the Jewish three watches of the night. And the words are that Jesus came to them walking on or upon or on top of the water. The same water that the boat was on, the same water that was, had breaking waves over the boat because of the harsh winds, the same water the disciples spent their whole life fishing on, bring out the naturalistic explanations then. Surely there's a viable alternative. Since you asked, I will tell you. And I don't mind saying I think, well, I'll let you judge what you think of them. Some have said that Jesus must have been walking on some kind of shallow mud flat, invisible to the eye, but just underneath the surface. Others have said that he was on some kind of floating raft, or that he was walking along the shore, and there was a mist that obscured the vision of the disciples. But when we examine the details that are actually recorded, there's no mist. They're clearly in the middle of the sea, and as if anyone could actually use a raft or a shallow bridge to walk to an exact point in the sea, in a direct spot, the author is quite clear in what he intends to communicate. He wants his readers to understand that Jesus came to them walking on the water. And once again, just to be as clear as I can possibly be, this event is Jesus flexing his divinity. He's exercising and demonstrating his authority and power over nature. The seas especially have a rich theological meaning in the Old Testament, representing chaos and darkness. In chapter 4, Jesus demonstrates his divine authority with his word by speaking and calming the storm. Well, now he demonstrates his divinity with his whole body. He doesn't even need to speak. He just treads over the waters. This is not possible for man. Kids in the room, some of you are here, Kaya, Brooklyn, Thomas, Allison. The next time you see water, well, maybe not the next time you see water, the next time you go swimming, try to walk on the water. See what happens. Every adult's already tried it in the room. No matter how quickly you move your legs, you're not going to be able to stand on top of it. But that's how amazing Jesus is. He's able to stand on the water. And the next time you go swimming and try and fail, inevitably, remember, as you grow older, that nothing in this world is more powerful than Jesus. And if you trust in him, he will be with you always. Nothing can separate you from him, just like the water can't stop Jesus from coming to his disciples. Another amazing detail that is, is that the disciples didn't expect it to be Jesus. They thought he was a ghost. They're terrified of him. And in case you think that was a common superstition of the day, it wasn't. It was about as common as it is today to have a, a superstition of ghosts. What we have here are genuine reactions of the disciples who are seeing something that they themselves can't believe. They're seeing something that goes beyond their understanding of reality. So they think he's a ghost, which makes sense if you were out in a boat in the middle of the sea, in the middle of the night, the last thing you expect to see is a person walking on the water. I love what Mark says right at the beginning of verse 50. Look at it again. 
he says that they all saw him and were terrified. It's like they saw a figure on the water and they had one of those bewildering moments and they all had that, those conversations among themselves. You're seeing what I'm seeing? I'm not the only one seeing this, right? And they're all in agreement with each other. This wasn't a hallucination of any kind. They saw him and were terrified because they didn't know what to think about it. Clearly, this movement of Jesus is a divine disclosure in the way that he walks where only God walks. Before he formed the world, God hovered over the waters. He separated them from dry land. He set the boundaries of the oceans. In Job 9.10, God is the one who stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And when Job writes, he says that he passes by him, but he cannot see him. He moves, but is not perceived. But in the person of Jesus, we see God manifested in human flesh, revealing to the disciples by his excellent power. You could say that Jesus walks the walk, and he talks the talk. And that's movement four. Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks. In their terror, they cry out, and Jesus speaks to them. Now, he could have let them fear a little more, if you ask me. Mark says immediately. But he could have made them a little more desperate. Behold, he could have said. Fear me. Beg me for salvation. It is I. Instead, he speaks as calmly as the waters around him. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. These words of Jesus are universally applicable to the Christian. Are you struggling to move forward? Are you afraid? Some of you might be desperate to hear these words. Maybe you feel like you're hanging on by a thread in the storms of life. Notice Jesus doesn't say that there's nothing to be afraid of. We live in a world where there is much to be afraid of. Countries are facing civil unrest right now. Others, the realities of war. Natural disasters have made some friends of mine homeless this week. But even life outside of these extremes have all kinds of things to be afraid of. Financial insecurity, loss of loved ones, terminal cancer. It's not that there's no reason to fear. It's not that there are no storms. It's that Jesus is with us through them. Remember what the Lord said to Joshua after Moses passed away. Just before entering in the land, he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He didn't tell them not to fear because he would remove the battles in front of them. He commanded them to be strong and courageous to face the battles ahead because God was with them. That promise continues through Christ today. His final words to his disciples before ascending, after the resurrection, were, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. No matter the situation you find yourself in, you can take courage that the God who made all things is with you and will never leave you. Take heart. Have courage. Be of good cheer. Do not fear because I am with you. Jesus is doing more than just comforting them with these words. 
if by walking on the sea he is showing them his divinity, by saying, it is I, he is telling them his identity. Why is that? Well, it's because what we've translated as it is I is the Greek way of saying I am. Jesus is disclosing himself here with the same verbiage that God used to identify himself to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3.14. Moses asks what he should call him. And God says, I am who I am, which becomes the very name of God. Tell them, I am has sent you, he says to Moses. And this is not the only place that Jesus says something like this. He says in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And shortly after that, he says, I and the Father are one. And people try to stone him because they know exactly what he's saying. Jesus provided for the people in a way that paralleled God's provision to Israel in the wilderness just before this event. And so Mark is showing his readers clearly that Jesus reveals himself to be the God of the Old Testament as he looks back on these events. And the reason we know that to be certain is because of what Mark says in verse 52. He says, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Meaning their understanding was clouded by their unbelief. I take verse 52 as Mark's way of basically saying, how more obvious could this be? He provided bread in the wilderness for crying out loud. Then he walks on water and he even uses the divine name to announce himself to the disciples. And he gets into the boat and the wind ceases. And here we have to come to the terms that as much as we want to root for the disciples, they're not exactly painted in a positive light, are they? If they didn't have hard hearts, then they would have recognized Jesus immediately. Then they wouldn't have been afraid or surprised to see him. They would have understood about the loaves. They're astounded because they can't believe it. And this is just one of many examples throughout the Bible that we can point to to prove that seeing, in fact, is not believing. Seeing is not believing. I've certainly felt at times that, you know, if I was able to just see God right on the wall, that my faith would be stronger. If he revealed himself to me in a way that I thought was more clear. But I can tell you with confidence that every year I read the Bible and study it, I become more and more convinced that God could not have revealed himself more clearly to his people. If he could part the Red Sea or walk on water or resurrect from the dead and people who witnessed those things still did not believe, I don't think the problem is with God making himself visible, but with sinful men hardening their hearts, having eyes but not seeing and ears but not hearing, as the prophet Isaiah says. Perhaps you're here today and feel like God hasn't revealed himself to you as much as you would like. Perhaps you wonder why he doesn't just speak to you in a dream or write a message in the sky. And I would simply say, what makes you think that by testing God, your faith will be any greater than those of the disciples who did not test God and whose hearts were still hardened? By demanding a sign from God, 
Haven't you already decided that you've rejected his current signs? Haven't you already decided that he hasn't done enough? There's a parable in Luke 16 of a rich man who goes to hell. And in his suffering, he realizes his mistake and he calls out to Abraham, who he sees in heaven, and he pleads with him to send messengers to his five brothers so that they could avoid the torment. And you know what Abraham says to him? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he says, yes, but if someone goes from the dead, then they will hear and repent. And he says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone should rise from the dead. If you want a sign from God, read his word. Hebrews 1 said that God revealed himself to our fathers by the prophets long ago, but in these last days he has revealed his son. There could be no greater sign than these. Faith is a gift. If you long to be with Jesus, ask him to give you the gift of faith. It's a gift that he eventually gives to the disciples despite their hard hearts and unbelief early on. They would eventually plant the first churches. And if God can use these disciples so powerfully, he can certainly use you or me. Our God is not a mute God. Jesus speaks. Fifth movement. Jesus heals. Jesus heals. We see this in the next paragraph, verses 53 to 56, which is really another one of Mark's summary statements about Jesus' ministry. He has a number of them. We've already covered a number of them. The disciples and Jesus land at a place called Gennesaret, which is about halfway between where they left and where he told them to go, Bethsaida. And Jesus likely, uh, once he reached them in the boat and they were exhausted from struggling in the wind, probably just instructed them to go to the nearest place, which would have been Gennesaret. It would have been early in the morning at this point, and the disciples must have been exhausted. So they anchor there. And at this point in the gospel, the reaction of the people shouldn't surprise us, though it's ironic uh, that the disciples don't recognize him and they have unbelief. But those in larger crowds do recognize him immediately. But there's just a few things I want you to see about this summary of Jesus' ever-growing ministry. First is just the universal kindness of Jesus to all who seek him out. People are carrying their sick in their beds. Verse 56 says that they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garments. Reminds me of the bleeding woman back in chapter 5 who knew that if she only touched his garment, she would be healed. And just to be extra, extra clear, Uh, There's nothing magical about Jesus' clothing. It's not the clothing that heals, but the power of the person wearing the clothing. Notice also there's nobody in these crowds too sick to heal. Nor does Jesus turn anyone away. That's true still today. He cares for even the least of us. Second, in this summary, we get just a glimpse of the healing that will occur to the restored humanity. 
These earthly healings point towards a greater healing, a greater salvation. In the Bible, there's a close connection between sickness or illnesses and our sinful condition. Oftentimes, when you see physical healing by Jesus in the Bible, there's spiritual healing implied with it. In fact, the word that we translate as made well in verse 56, it's the same word that we use to translate as saved in other instances. When Jesus gives attention to the needy in the Gospels, the sign of physical healing or restoration usually represents spiritual healing and restoration as well. Think about the time that Jesus cleansed the leper, making him ceremonially clean, or forgave the cripple before telling him to rise and walk. So in this final section, it's not just a summary of miracles, though it is that. It's also a foreshadowing of the redemption that Jesus brings. Jesus' ability to heal physically points to the eternal reality he secures for his people on the cross. God's power and identity are revealed in the person of Jesus. That much is clear from these verses. And there's one more connection that I want to show you that I've just been saving to the end because I think it's cool. It comes from the very strange statement in verse 48 where it says that Jesus, as he came to his disciples walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them. Which sounds like Jesus was not even planning on stopping at all or joining them in the boat. But why in the world would he do that? If he wasn't planning on stopping, why did he cross closely enough for them to see him? This language of passing by, is an echo of what we read earlier in the service from Exodus 33. It's an echo to the time that Moses asked for God to reveal his glory to him. And the Lord said he would hide him in a cleft in the rock and pass by. And if you remember the reading, when the glory of God passes by Moses, he reveals his glory by revealing his character. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In Exodus 34, the glory of God passes by and a word is revealed to Moses. In Mark 6, the glory of God passes by and a person is revealed to the disciples. The combination of the wilderness provision, the meeting with God on a mountain, the divine name and his divine presence passing by the disciples is like a reenactment of the Exodus to show us that God has brought a new exodus through his son, Jesus, who is the embodiment of his power and identity. This Jesus is the one in control. He is the one who can give us new life. One final observation to make about this text. Jesus' power and authority in this situation doesn't just comfort us through difficult times, It doesn't just give us confidence in his power to save. This passage assures readers like us that the cross was no accident. Jesus, who is omniscient, who walks on water, who heals out of the very edges of his clothing, was not accidentally crucified. He was not overpowered by the Romans. No, from the very beginning, the cross was God's divine plan to rescue sinners. Jesus came 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So take heart, be not afraid. Jesus is he. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. Because by your word, you speak to us. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have revealed yourself in these last days through the person of Jesus. That in your love, you sought us out. That you died the death that we deserve. Jesus, we praise you for doing these things. Would you prepare our hearts to remember your sacrifice in taking the Lord's Supper this morning? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.